Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we have some treats for you in our interview. Well, we always, we always have treats, right? Right. But we're going to start with a, a really interesting one. We have um, not just Michael, the brother and son, Paulin, uh, writing the interview, I mean the introduction. Uh, he's not on the podcast, actually. But we do have his mother and his sisters who are going to talk to us about their latest book called Mostly Plants. You all know Michael Pollan, who started this um, the whole rolling yeah, of, of uh, plant-forward food and eating uh, from the omnivorous dilemma, which certainly shook up the, uh, the food family here. And uh, listen to where – he didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, he obviously had some – influence in his life growing up. So let's listen to the Poland family, and their book is called Mostly Plants. These words have become so famous, so motivational. I wondered when I first read the opening of Michael Pollan's book, uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, um, if he had to have written the rest of the book, because this said it all, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. <laughs> now, that, that's so said, true. It's it's amazing. It set off such a revolution in cooking that uh, to this day I could barely believe it. And you must have your thoughts too. Uh, we're talking, listeners to three of Michael's sisters and his mother, his sisters Tracy, Dana, Laurie, and Corky. And um, they have such interesting stories. Their book is called Mostly Plants, um, not surprisingly. And it's mainly about where I personally am settling into is the flexitarian aspects of the diet. Now, we, we interviewed, I don't know if you know Gene Bauer or not from, um, what's it called? The Farm Sanctuary, who is into animal welfare and vegetarianism. And they, yeah, we'll talk about that later on. I want to talk about why we're talking to him. Um, but let's talk about, first of all, can you give us a brief synopsis of your backgrounds and including how you grew up in terms of diet. Why don't we start with Corky? How about starting with Corky, because she's the mother of this lot, and uh, and you certainly would have influenced how they grew up eating, right? Okay, this is Corky, and I grew up on Long Island um, in a family. Uh, I had four uh, siblings, and uh, we would sit down for dinner um, just about every night, um, and it was a very much a classic, traditional dinner for that time, uh, mainly a big hunk of protein, a vegetable. In my family, it would always be potatoes, because that's what my father sold, and uh, vegetables. And our household, because my father was in the business, we would have broccoli, or asparagus, or artichokes, which was unusual at that time. Most of my friends would be eating carrots, or string beans, or peas. Uh-huh. Now, uh, throw in here that you actually 
uh, are in the writing business as well as the food business. Well, I had been at New York Magazine for about 17 years writing a column uh, called Best Bets, which was kind of their signature column, my signature column, and one of the most popular of the magazine. And then I went um, to uh, Gourmet Magazine, where I was the style director, and very much involved with food and um, utensils and the whole world of um, food at that time. Yeah, I just read Ruth Rochel's latest book. Oh, yes. Yes. So, uh, anyhow, so you you were part of, of that institution in the food industry, right? Correct, until the magazine folded. Right, which is a sad story. Um, yeah, the the... Well, it's another story, too, about the poor Picayune. You know, Tom's Picayune in New Orleans got bought out, too. And so I knew us again. Anyhow, let's do Tracy next. Okay. Hi, I am. this is Tracy. And um, I am an actress, and um, I live in New York City. And obviously I grew up in the Pollen family. And um, we, I have to say, having Corky as a mother and Michael as a brother, we're a very food-oriented, food-forward family. And I was a big meat lover, meat eater when I was very little, and then I became a vegetarian in my early teens and stayed vegetarian through two of my pregnancies and then decided that adding a little bit of meat was um, sort of the best diet for me so now i am flexitarian which is the you know what which is what the recipes are in this cookbook mostly plants okay and dana okay hi this is dana um so i started my career actually in the fitness business with lori and um yeah you both are fitness people huh fitness and welfare you're both fitness and welfare i mean wellness people yes so uh we owned a studio together for about 10 years very successful studio on the upper east side in new york where we taught classes um did one-on-one personal training but also did some nutritional counseling at that time and that was in the 80s and a little bit into the 1990s um and then after that i had my three kids and raised them and then sort of as they were getting a little older, um, we all decided to, you know, endeavor writing cookbooks. Um, I grew up, let's see, I ate a lot of meat when I was younger. Um, but when I was 16 years old, I decided to become vegetarian. And I've been a vegetarian ever since. Uh-huh. And uh, who, who is the one that recounts the, the story of kosher, the pig? Right. This is Dana. That's me. Yes. So um, we were younger. My father, Stephen, surprised uh, our brother, Michael, with a baby pig. And oh. Michael loved pigs and had a big collection of ceramic pigs and little everything to do with pigs. And um, And I think for me, it was just becoming so attached this adorable little baby that we, you know, we give him, we give her milk from a bottle and nurtured her, and she lived in a little dresser drawer in Michael's room. And I think 
being so attached to her, I would think about when I was eating meat, what I was eating. And then it just, and I loved bacon, I loved pork, but it just got to the point where I thought, you know what, I'm just going to give this up now. And once I gave it up, I, I really never looked back. And you were the one who said you began thinking not just what, but who you were eating, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> that tells you, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, now we have Laurie. Hi, yes, this is Laurie. So Dana and I uh, had our fitness center together and we're very invo- involved in health and wellness. And then I also uh, got a coaching certificate and I coach people on health, wellness, nutri- you know, diet, not so much nutrition, but just how to eat. And so it sort of goes back to, you know, how you opened things with eat food and not too much, mostly plants, which is seems so, as you say, just so basic and, um, you know, uh, just strikes you as simplicity, you know, maximized. And um, I think that people just really love any kind of guidance that helps them to know how to eat for their best um, health. Yeah, I mean, and, I, I think um, that they probably, you should assemble a, a course for doctors because they are notoriously the least informed about nutrition of any class of people I know. Well, they're, they're also the, how interesting. They're, they're, also the professions yeah. who, they're also the professions who still smoke the most. And they smoke, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I guess, yeah. Um, now, Michael does the forward to your book, um, I'm curious to know, is, well, first, is this your first recipe book, cookbook? Oh, this is quirky. No. no, this is our second, actually. The first was called The Pollen Family Table, and the big theme there was um, get, uh, sitting together, having meals together, and the importance of family m- meals in a communal table. Uh, and uh, that one um, had many, many uh, meals that uh, recipes that appeal to whole families. So this mostly plants is our second book. But now, how were you surprised when when your brother, your son, uh, came out with the, his uh, omnivore dilemma and how successful it was? I think that, oh, this is quirky again, I think to me it's been amazing how he's carved out such a niche for himself with his writings. He had always, almost from a small child, loved gardening. So the gardening element uh, didn't come uh, as a surprise, but the fact that um, he folded his love of writing in with his love of gardening, I thought was just an amazing connection. Well, I mean, it, it certainly is. <laughs> it's pretty wonderful. Um, now, this book is, well, you, you start out, of course, there's Michael's forward and, and your introduction showing your intentions and, and the, the, essentially the virtues of the flexitarian diet. Or, But I told you earlier that we interviewed uh, Gene Borg, and he said um, every Buddy has a singular personal point of reference to how they define their vegetarian or vegan or vegetable forward diet. And that's part of what you cover in your book, right? This is Lori. 
Um, yes, I think that's what we're trying to capture with flexitarian, because some people feel very hemmed in by calling themselves a particular way of eating, vegan, vegetarian, um, you know, Mediterranean, whatever. And so basically people can eat um, the healthiest way possible and not have to restrict and say no to any particular food group. The idea is to eat mostly plants is as much, you know, plant and grain and legume and beans. And if they want to eat meat, to still be able to, but just, you know, minimize the amount that they're eating. Yeah, now you, I think that the point is well taken that uh, vegetarians, um, vegetable plant forward uh, eating is better for the planet. And it's probably healthier as well. I mean, it is healthier. Um, yeah, this is Dana, and um, there's so many health benefits um, to eating this way. I mean, I think we've all read, you know, we reduce the risk of chronic diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, many cancers. Um, they say flexitarians can reap all the same benefits as if being on a vegetarian diet, and again, that's you know, eating meat but cutting down on the amount of, of meat you eat, um, they say, you know, flexitarians live longer than people who eat a lot of meat. Um, they say, it, you know, it helps with memory and people feel less depressed. So there's so many health benefits. And then, of course, as you said, there's so many environmental benefits as well. I mean, we reduce greenhouse gases tremendously. Um, by opting to eat less meat, and we save, you know, billions of gallons of water. So it's really, you know, a win-win um, in terms of eating this way. Now, but I, I do think that that for all of this to be true, it would be even venture to say that uh, um, people who eat more vegetables, less meat, um, or even to say vegetarians, um, tend to weigh less. And I think it yeah. really depends, you see, because I would take issue with that. I think it depends on what you <laughs> substitute because, I mean, I, I have uh, relatives, a branch of the family, that every time they go on a, a vegan kick, um, they fill in with fat and, and carbs and end up fatter than they were before. This is Tracy. Um, I would agree with you that it really depends on what you're eating and the quality of the food that you're eating. Exactly. You can still eat a lot of processed food on a fully vegan or vegetarian diet. Right. And that is usually something that is not going to help with weight loss or, you know, you, you have to maintain eating whole healthy foods, vegetables, whole grains, Obviously not a ton of fat, and um, but I think that if you're mindful of all of that, you do tend to weigh less. Um, we all, you know, really don't have to diet, and we just naturally weigh a little bit less because of um, our diets are filled with so many healthy whole foods. Yeah, now you cover a lot of this because um, it's you admit, of course, it's generally more expensive to eat the um, the quality foods, the, uh, the um, organic or the free range or the, you know, humanely raised and the 
antibiotic-free and blah, 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 and so forth. There's so many things to look out for. And you have a section that I really appreciated in your book that talks about how to purchase these things and not to be misled by the, 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 uh, the label they give them. And tell us about some of those. I mean, like, um, what was it? The one about um, chickens, free-range chickens, about how chickens normally like insects and worms and so on. So if you're trying to label them vegetarian, they're, they're not free-range. They're held in, inside so they don't get to these things, right? This is Lori, yes. Um, it's very interesting because you go to the store and it's very confusing. You yes. know, free-range, grass-fed, organic, natural. And so in the book we have a whole section that dissects those terms and what they mean and what you're talking about here is the eggs and you'll see packaging that says, you know, vegetarian chickens, you know, for the eggs or vegetarian eggs. And the reality is that um, chickens do in fact like to eat, you know, little insects and bugs. And so you don't necessarily want to prevent them from eating what would be their natural diet. So doing a little research and having a little knowledge is really helpful but when you go to the the supermarket, it, it it's in, it is an interesting issue for you to to take up on and see if it's the same. When when we I have a lot of family in England, and uh, our our nieces obviously shop there. <laughs> they shop they shop a yeah. lot because they have families, and they said they don't buy the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the. Organic. They, orga- they don't buy the organic vegetables because the organic vegetables are more expensive, and as a result, they stay on the shelf longer, and they're, so, so they're so they're not as fresh. So so they just decided they would buy the the stuff that was freshest and li- least expensive. Now, does that kind of thing happen here, or is everybody so enhan- entranced with whole foods that they that they don't? Notice the fact that what they're buying is more expensive. This is Lori again. I think that used to be very true that perhaps people weren't buying as much organic. I think they didn't have a lot of knowledge about it. And so sometimes the produce would look a little wilted and old. But I think you can find now, you know, Target is selling, you know, organic food. I think you can find it much more readily available and in good shape. It is sometimes more expensive, and so we really um, follow and are proponents of the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 so that fruits and vegetables that have a particular, uh, you know, high level of pesticides try to buy those organic. Like strawberries. Strawberries are one of the worst offenders, right? Yeah, some okay. of the berries are bad, that's right. Yeah, and, and also I hold, found hold, out hold on a bit. lemon you, rind. You snuck, you snuck something in there about the the dirty dozen or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I like that too. Tell us about that, your dirty dozen. So um, there is a yearly um, rundown of the dirty dozen and clean 15. Do you guys remember which site that it is? It's the Environmental Working Group. Working Group, that's yeah, right. That's environmental yeah, yeah, and, and so they say which ones are particularly clean also, so you might not have to, or, or less pesticides, so you might not have to worry about buying the organic version of that. 
Right. Now, I, I think at this stage of the conversation, I can tell you what um, Jean Bauer was talking to us about. And the issue was all this great sensation uh, surrounding the release of, um, what's it called, um, impossible meat to Burger King. And, right. and from there we yeah. go to Beyond Food, and then from there we we went to the Petri dish stuff. I mean, it's, it's getting to be almost impossible to deal with this whole thing. Pardon the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's what we were talking about, and and that's where we got into you have to really research all of this and, and then make your choices. Exactly. I mean, just because it's vegetarian and vegan doesn't make it healthy. Right. And you really have to see how your product is being made and how it's processed. They're also using that impossible. They're, I think one of the taco fast food, Taco Bell or something like that, is now coming up with an impossible taco. And it really is all over the place. And people are responding to it because I think that they want to be more mindful of how much meat they're, they're eating. But I think they need to do a little, educate themselves and do a little bit more research into yeah, but they can't keep up. Impossible meat cannot keep up with the demand at this point. Yeah, and, I know. And beyond meat had went crazy in an IPO. People just went nuts. Yeah. This is Dana, though, but one very exciting thing, I mean, it's true, it's, it can get daunting with what's out there. And, like, who knows what's in all of these, and it, there is definitely, like, processed things happening with them making this. But I guess it is exciting that people, as Tracy said, you know, want to eat differently and know that it's really important to be eating lots of plants and, and, you know, vegetables and fruits and legumes and nuts and seeds. So I think we're, like, headed in the right direction, and now it's really finding out and determining what is good for us, you know, what I should choose to buy and what should I maybe stay away from. Well, now, let's, let's, not, let's not forget... This is a cookbook, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. So, we have recipes in this cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they're delicious. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, I, was, I had one other thing to talk about before I jump to the recipes. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> That's all right. Is, uh, I, I just wanted to say that um, you want eating well to also be accessible and um, well, relatively painless. <laughs> so you have a lot of tips in this book under the section Sage Advice and Time-Tested Shortcuts that addresses these issues. And, um, and then I wanted to say that there are tips on how to make things taste better, which is absolutely key to having anybody follow any of these, um, these guidelines. And then, okay, we're now into the recipes. Now, uh, how did you choose the recipes? I was wondering what what the recipes would you like to present um, as best uh, examples of the kind of eating you're talking about. Quirky, do you want to start? Uh, yes, um, there are a couple of them that I think really sort of capture what we're talking about. Uh, one of my favorites, um, I'm a flexitarian, I'm not a vegetarian, and I think one of my favorites is the salmon piccata. 
Um, The flavors that you end up with are so really wonderful. And so it's a salmon that you're also having beans with, uh, legumes, and spinach. So it's a complete meal right there and so flavorful uh, that I think for anyone uh, it's just uh, a delightful and beautiful-looking kind of dish. We also have a couple of really wonderful um, tortilla kind of recipes. There's an amped up vegetable nachos. We take something that's often not that healthy, um, nachos and cheese, and we've added so many vegetables to it. So that is also like a full meal right there with a real appeal to uh, so many tastes. Uh, now, why did you include your paella recipe? <laughs> it's something I make every summer on the vineyard, and the vineyard is so wonderful for um, doing a fish and seafood-based uh, recipe. It sounds very, very complicated, but it feeds a really large crowd, and you can break it up into steps. And uh, yeah, I like that you said that. I mean, how you could cook all that and put it in the refrigerator and assemble it at the last minute when you get so hungry. Yeah, yes, you can really do that. And all the elements in uh, it are so delicious. Uh, but you, you do, I mean, it just seemed like um, you you have an, a, a surplus, actually, of, of um, fish and, um, and animal-based products in there. In the book? No, in that in one the paella, recipe. Oh, the in the paella. paella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is one of them, but it is a flexitarian um, cookbook. So the majority of the recipes are completely vegetarian. And then there's some that have just a little bit of um, meat or fish protein with a lot of grains and vegetables. And the paella is one that is probably more fish-heavy than um, than some of the other ones. Seafood, it does have yes. grains and yeah, more seafood-heavy. But um, that's just one of many, many um, primarily vegetarian recipes. I love paella. <laughs> yeah, we do too. Courtney yes. and I are um, flexitarian, and that's a big favorite of ours. Um, what do you think is the, the best recipe that for vegans in your book? Oh, oh, that's, that's a good question. Of... With a lot, we have a really good vegan taco salad, which is really, I mean, just filled with vegetables and, but also protein and um, and avocado and corn, and that one is delicious. We have a vegan lentil pasta, which is lots of lentils with tomato. Um, what I think that's what we love about this book, and hopefully everyone will love it too, is. We have um, icons under each recipe denoting whether it's vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free or dairy-free, and if it's a quick recipe. So you can really modify. We give modifications if, let's say, you're making something, you know, a vegetarian. It has a vegetarian icon, but you want to make it vegan. We give you modifications of how to do that. Because, you know, if you think of so many people today are following so many different ways of eating. Oh, isn't that the um, truth? This book. How about yeah, a dinner hopefully. party? <laughs> oh, my God. It's impossible. Right. One's a vegan, one's a gluten-free. You know, you can use this book and find all of those recipes. Right. So, And, and I also I enjoyed your perfect panini. Uh, that one's yeah. fun. Yeah. 
we're big sandwich lovers. <laughs> All of us. Every pollen loves sandwiches. So we thought, okay, we're so adept at making sandwiches, we should just share this information with the world. <laughs> Well, anyhow, I'll I'll mention um, that you also have desserts for people who are uh, interested in desserts, and some of those look really good, too. Um, This is a quirky, and all the desserts in the book have a fruit or vegetable connection. So it follows through with our whole philosophy of eating, and they're quite delicious. Now, you, you mentioned something a little bit ago. I probably was supposed to know, or Anne was supposed to know, probably did know already. You mentioned a vineyard? Oh, I said a vineyard. Uh, An island off the coast um, near Boston. Martha's Vineyard, she said. Oh, Martha's Vineyard. Yes, yes. He just parks up on your nose, vineyard. No, I wanted to put in a plug for the ultimate vegan food. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, no, we, we summer a lot. On, this is quirky again. We summer a lot on the vineyard, and it's such a part of our, uh, you know, summer cooking. Uh, you know, the seafood, uh, the tomatoes, uh, it, it, you know, just the fresh fruit, the farmer's markets is so wonderful. That's another thing. We really are believers in shopping in farmer's markets, yes. even here in New York. Yeah, and we, I've enjoyed that they've, our local ones have become stricter on, and of course in New York strict too, is you can't have all that stuff brought in from the outside. They have to actually be grown by farmers at the, in the markets. So, yeah, so, um, you yeah, have to also, you have to know the farmer as well. Right. Yes, and there are certain ones that you know and you just gravitate to every time you're there. Right. Well, I think it's a wonderful book, and I congratulate you on it, and it's going to be infinitely useful and and welcomed by a lot of people who want to feel good about what they eat and know how to go about doing it. Again, now it's the whole uh, Poland family, uh, Tracy, Dana, (laughs) Lori, and Corky, and it's called Mostly Plants. 101 Delicious Flexitarian Recipes from the Poland Family. Well, you, you have been wonderful as, as a guest crew here. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so thank much. You. So thank nice you so much. It means so much yeah. to us. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. 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 And don't go away because we'll be right back after a short break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up is really one of my favorite interviewees, as we might say, uh, Gene Bauer from Farm Sanctuary, He's doing great work. His head's on straight, and he's a joy to talk to.
Gene Bauer, I hope that we could ex- sort of straighten out this whole issue about um, meat. I mean, I don't know. Is it real? Is it not real? Uh, is it vegetarian? Is it vegan? Um, is it uh, coming from a petri dish, or is it a chemical, or is it uh, genetically modified? I mean, there's everything about it. And I want to make a point, by the way, of your name is spelt without the E, B-A-U-R, because nobody would be able to find you if they used an and, E. And he's not the man in the Arby's commercial who says, we've got the meat. <laughs> That's for sure. He, how many farm sanctuaries do you have now? Well, we operate two, one two, in New yeah. York, one in California, but there are literally hundreds around the world that are all independent and doing good work taking care of animals. Really, all over the world. And do they take... Their model after your operation? Yeah, well, we were the first one. We were founded in 1986, and I think that, you know, people have been inspired to try to make a difference. So, yeah, I think we started this movement, um, but there's a variety of different approaches and, and, and unique circumstances that the, the different sanctuaries operate according to. Okay, your, your basic mission in a nutshell for those who don't know what we're talking about could you give us that if you could give us your mission oh, our mission yes yes so farm sanctuary is a non-profit organization we work to prevent cruelty to farm animals including through efforts to ban certain factory farming practices we work to change how society views and treats farm animals by operating sanctuaries and providing opportunities for people to interact with animals as friends instead of seeing them as food. And then we advocate for compassionate living, and we encourage people to make mindful choices about their food and to eat plants instead of animals. And we also work with institutions and restaurants to promote more plant-based food for consumers. And one of our campaigns back in the 1990s, in fact, had to do with encouraging Burger King to sell veggie burgers. Oh, well, now and they are. <laughs> well, they're and, not and they, really. well, you know, they, they actually started doing the BK veggie back in the 1990s mm-hmm. based on our campaign, but it was not nearly as widely publicized, uh, nor, I don't think, is the burger as much like meat as the Impossible Burger, which they just recently tested in yeah, Missouri. Yeah, see, that, that's one of my issues is, um, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, you know that, uh, but this vegetarian Whopper that Burger King has is a product of Impossible Meat, which actually has devised a way to make the thing look like it's bleeding. And I would think if I were a, a, a vegan, that would really make me sick to my stomach. Yeah, well, for the vegan movement is diverse, believe it or not, and I think that there are some people within the vegan movement who do not want to eat the Impossible Burger because it is too much like meat. Uh, but there are also other vegans who do eat it. And I think the Impossible Burger and other products like it were actually designed not so much for vegans, but for meat eaters to appeal to people who like the taste of meat and who can still get that taste without eating uh, the body of an animal. Right. I mean, it's been all over the, the press. Everybody's got an opinion on this. Apparently, the texture is um, is... More like real meat. Yes, it is. Uh, the, the Impossible Burger tastes a lot and has a texture that's very similar to to meat, like ground beef. Uh, same thing with the Beyond Burger, 
which I don't know if, if you heard, but it recently went public on the oh, yes. New York Stock Exchange, and it, and, it, and it exploded. I mean, you know, it started out, I think, at $25 a share, and by the end of the first day of trading, it was over $60 a share. So there seems to be a lot of interest and enthusiasm for plant-based alternatives to animal foods. Oh, indeed. I mean, it's, uh, it's, as I said, it's all over, and, and it's going the, to the point of confiscation in a, in a sense because of this. Um, now they're talking about um, growing actual muscle tissue, stem cells and whatnot, from animals in a Petri dish. And would yeah. that be acceptable? Well, you know, again, I think in the vegan movement, there are going to be different perspectives. And, you know, I think a lot of it depends on what a person's priorities are. If a person is primarily concerned about not causing animals to suffer and to die needlessly, you know, the idea of replicating cells in a laboratory or, you know, what they're saying now is it's more like a brewery where, you know, they would, you know, have these cells replicate in in that type of a facility – but, uh, you know, if your concern is that animals not suffer, the idea of producing meat from cells is a way to achieve that. But I think there's also people that are a little bit uh, discomforted by the idea of taking cells and replicating them this way. And it's a little bit frightening from a technological standpoint. So, you know, it's still a product that's under development, and there are different opinions about it, and there are some people that are strong proponents and other people who are concerned about it. So, um, you know, for me, you know, I see both sides, and, you know, it's not something on the market right now, so it's not something that consumers are asking about because they're not deciding whether or not to eat it. But you have big companies, you know, like uh, some of the big agribusinesses, in fact, who are investing not only in, in the plant-based meats like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, but they're investing also in this cellular technology. So there's a lot happening in that space right now, and it's, it's really hard to keep track of all the specifics and the details. Yeah, I mean, are these I – mean, I know. I, I know from um, the press releases I get from the books I get that there is decidedly an increase not only in um, veganism and vegetarianism, but also people who are – Choosing that lifestyle on, on a flexible basis, uh, and I have uh, I have friends that uh, have really used th- that approach um, to, to improve their health, and it works. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it does. And but I mean, like, where you say there's all this diversity? I mean, is there some line you would make about accept what's acceptable and what isn't? Right. Well, you know, I have my personal feelings about things, and I also, you know, represent Farm Sanctuary. And as an organization, and, and personally, one of our values is to speak to people where they are on their own journeys to support incremental steps in a positive direction. And by that, I mean working to live as kindly as possible and to prevent causing unnecessary harm to other animals, as well as the earth and ourselves. So when you look at these various products, um, I think they all intend to reduce the suffering of animals on factory farms. So those are all positive steps, I believe. 
Um, now, when you get into some more details, though, you know, some of the t- these technologies might have human health implications that are positive yeah, or like negative. Yeah, like the GMO stuff. I mean, what do you do about that? You know? Yeah, well, well I, the thing about GMOs that concerns me the most is, is the way it has the, the power structures that come around it because we have GMOs. You tend to have people or companies that own it, and then they control how it's used. And as GMOs are used in our food system and certain powerful entities own and control them, um, they can very much influence the life of farmers. Uh, they influence the well-being of the ecosystem where these products are grown. They influence the health of consumers. So, you know, to me, a big part of it has to do with just the social and economic structure that comes with GMOs. Um, and when it comes to the biology and the health issues, I have concerns, uh, but I don't know enough about it, Frank, to be able to have a strong opinion. My primary focus has to do with preventing suffering and creating a more sustainable, healthy, plant-based food system. And my ideal scenario would be community-oriented organic farms in a variety of settings. Uh, in urban settings, um, there could even be vertical farming, and there's different opinions about that. But certainly uh, gardens, um, in some cases container gardens, if there's not enough soil in a particular area, maybe rooftop gardens. Um, and then in suburban areas, I can see a food-not-lawns approach where exactly. instead of growing grass, right, growing vegetables, and then having diversity, going towards permaculture, having, you know, food forests and having, you know, plants that are growing various foods that are living in a mutually beneficial situation. And, and then in rural areas, you know, you can grow a lot bigger plots of land. And so there may be more of the grains, the, the larger row crop types of things. But I think a diversified, community-oriented, plant-based food system uh, that does not rely on many chemical inputs and is... Uh, goes towards a permaculture uh, idea of mutuality is the kind of thing that I get most excited about. Now, it, it, these new, like the the Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger, I mean, are, are there chemicals involved in that? You know, they're different products. And my understanding is that the Impossible Burger did use some GMO technology, um, whereas the Beyond Burger did not. So for people that are concerned about that, you know, they could obviously choose the Beyond Burger instead. Um, and, and there are also other products coming online and being developed uh, that will be additional alternatives for people to choose from. Uh, you know, in fact, you know, the Beyond Burger, which just went public, you know, one of their early investors was Tyson Foods, which is a big factory farm agribusiness. But right before Beyond Meat went public, Tyson Foods actually sold, sold their shares and sold their interest because they plan to use that capital to start their own plant-based meat company. So there's an awful lot happening now in this space with small startups and entrepreneurs that are developing new companies. And then you have large agribusinesses uh, with lots of capital and long traditions in animal agriculture starting to invest in plant-based agriculture, which, which I see... It's actually very positive and exciting because you have a lot of diversity and a lot of different approaches 
and some of those will probably succeed and some of those will probably not succeed, or there might be mergers and acquisitions over time as well. Um, and I have mixed feelings about that, too. You know, So my ideal thing is local community-oriented agriculture, but in our food system today, it's, it's very industrial, and so there's going to be that model of plant-based food. And then you also have the smaller uh, community-oriented, community gardens, farmers markets, PSAs, and I think there's going to be kind of a bimodal approach here. Where do you come down on fish farming? Fish farming. Well, well, the way I see it is that fish, just like other animals, have feelings. They suffer when we kill them and when we confine them. And so I am against uh, okay. fish farming. I am against, you know, factory trawlers taking fish out of the ocean by the trillions the way they do now. So, um, you oh, know, sure, I, can, I that, understand that completely, but it's, it seems like we, we read a book by someone who's, and his, the, his thesis was that there would only be like th- three kinds of fish and they would all be farmed. Because, because, yeah, we, because we would have captured and killed and eaten all the white, all, all the wild ones. So sad. And so, you know, my opinion there is that we should stop catching and killing the wild ones. And in some cases, in fact, the domesticated fish are the ones that are raised in factory farm aquaculture settings yeah. are fed other fish that have been caught from the wild. So these are both exploitive systems, and I think they are much more efficient healthy ways to feed our population. And instead of, you know, if we're going to use the oceans for food, you know, we could be growing sea vegetables or seaweed. And seaweed. that could be done more efficiently, and it's healthier and less polluting, and it makes more sense. It's so, more sustainable, you know. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think we need, generally, to move towards plant-based agriculture. And that also includes not harming and consuming fish. Yeah, the uh, Poland family just published their family recipes in a cookbook. Did you see it? No. Who did that? The Poland family. You know, you know, oh, Michael. Oh, no, you know, I didn't. Michael, yeah, I've not seen His family now. published this, and, and we're interviewing the family, the whole family. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if Michael's oh, going to be on there or not about this book. It's their family recipes, and it's interesting. But, you Is know, it primarily plant based? Well, yeah, you know, his, his, the whole theory is um, eat real food, um, mostly plants, and not too much. That's his, yeah. you know. I mean, he could have saved himself the trouble of writing a whole book if he just wrote that <laughs> first sentence. It says it all. He wrote a whole book before. Yeah, and then he wrote another one, you know. <laughs> so, but, um, Seems like yeah. somebody made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> looking at this whole picture, I mean, I see the success of every little inch, depending on ultimately heading towards a total shake-up of, of what what we know. I mean, like, then you have the people who raise cattle. Um, we have uh, friends who are lamb farmers, you know, and they think that they're dealing with the, their animals humanely, um, but they'll be out of a job, right? Right. Well, you know, I think that there are alternatives for farmers that are currently involved in animal agriculture, and there are some really great examples of people who have transitioned. There's a dairy, for example, that used to operate in New York City called Elmhurst Dairy that is now a completely plant-based dairy. 
And for people who've been growing corn and soybeans as feed crop for animal agriculture, uh-huh. they can actually grow soybeans and, and do it organically for tofu or for edamame or for other, you know, direct uh, sales to consumers. And if you look at our food system, you know, right now, it's industrialized factory farming where we're mass producing foods and have a glut. We have excess. And, and, and farmers don't get very much for what they're producing. So I think that we need to create a more direct marketing approach where farmers and consumers are more closely connected and where the farmer gets a larger percentage of each dollar spent on food. Um, so I think that's the kind of thing that um, we need to see happen. And with that approach, I think there would be great opportunities for farmers. Uh, and in some cases, it would be innovations where they're doing value-added products or also rediscovering foods you know, such as amaranth or quinoa or jackfruit, which is used to replace meat in many products. And there are, are a wide variety of fruits and vegetables or heirloom varieties of tomatoes or apples or other more common fruits uh, that are opportunities for farmers uh, to produce quality food that they could sell at a higher price as opposed to quantity commodity products, which is the system we have now in place. just read something that said there's more, there are more tigers in um, captivity in preserves and zoos and so on than there are in the wild now. Yes, there was a study I read uh, not long ago talking about just what you said, how the majority of domesticated, the majority of the animals on Earth are today are domesticated. And when it comes to farm animals, it's, it's, it's the vast majority of them are farm animals. So of all the mammals on Earth, 96% are either human beings or other domesticated animals, most of them are farm animals. Only 4% of the Earth's mammals live in the wild today. It's tragic. Many many people would suggest that the people part of it are not very domesticated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, human beings, we have an enormous impact on the planet, and a big part of that has to do with animal agriculture. You know, we're cutting down rainforest in order to grow soybeans to feed farm animals, and it's terrible. And and so, you know, we're destroying ecosystems and wildlife habitat. We're also destroying trees. We're we're destroying insects. We're making all these species go extinct. Yes, we are, absolutely. So there is a bigger change in our future. I mean, it can't continue like this. I agree. It cannot continue like this. So... Um, but I think more and more people are starting to pay attention to the fact that human behavior has caused enormous harm to other animals and to the earth and ultimately to ourselves and that we need to evaluate what we're doing and make some serious changes. And part of that has to do with eating more plants and fewer animal products. Now, if people are dying for a, a, some sort of a, a, a fast course in, in what going on, what reference information would you give them? If they're concerned about their health or, or what particular I mean, area? How do people get up to speed? This is getting very technical, Gene. 
Well, I think you know, there's these Meatless Monday programs where people can choose, you know, one day a week, if, if they're not ready to go vegetarian or vegan, eat meatless one day a week. And it's getting easier now to find alternatives to meat, you know, veggie burgers instead of meat burgers is, is one thing they can do. But another, I think, very good piece of advice is to eat more ethnic foods because those tend to be plant-based. Exactly, right. You know, because historically we've been primarily plant eaters, you know, and, and just eat less meat uh, or substitute plant-based alternatives. Instead of cow's milk on cereal, for example, there's a variety of plant-based milks that people can try instead. You know, soy milk or almond milk or cashew milk or coconut milk or hemp milk. I mean, oat milk, there's tons and tons they of alternatives. They can't even keep up with the oat milk. <laughs> it's so much, so many times. It's it's, it's amazing to well, see. They can't, you know, even, with, they, they can't even uh, keep up with the uh, Impossible Burger. It's so much new stuff. And, um, you know, when I went vegan back in 1985, Jeez. I had to mix powder with water to make soy milk. And, you know, now you can go into a mainstream grocery store, and there are dozens of different kinds of plant-based milks. So we've made a lot of progress, exactly. and it's getting easier. So I think for people just to try these alternatives is, uh, I think, a useful useful way to approach it. And of course, the dairy farmers aren't real happy about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, mean, well, happen, you know? hmm? I mean, the tobacco farmers, many tobacco farmers had to make adjustments, and I think right. that, you know, That's animal agriculture point. people will have to make adjustments. That's a really good reference point. Um, well, I, I, I hope that, that we can expand our minds to accept a great big change because that's what it's going to take to change um, away from our meat-centric culture. I agree, absolutely. We need to have open minds. I think as human beings, we also have to be self-reflective and learn from the mistakes we've made and sadly are continuing to make and, and start acting in a more respectful way to other animals and nature. Now, could you give us the uh, your sanctuary farm um, website? Yes. It's the, the name of the organization is Farm Sanctuary, and the website is farmsanctuary.org. That's F-A-R-M-S-A-N-C-T-U-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. And we have farms in New York, in California, and people are welcome to come visit and get to know farm animals who have been rescued from abusive situations. And once they come to Farm Sanctuary, they're allowed to live out their lives. We see them as our friends not our food, and it's a very peaceful place. It's, it's a mutually beneficial place for the animals and also for people. Well, I, as I said, I was dying to talk to you about this issue because you're always so sensible and, and lucid. <laughs> yeah. you well, gave us well some... thank you very much. It's, it's an exciting time for our movement. And, oh, you know, as so. there is progress, there's also oftentimes, you know, when there's disruptions, there's, different opinions, and, and that's okay. Diversity is okay, but I think we are making some very good progress. I think a lot, actually. Well, yes. okay, Jean, thank you. I know you're so busy. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, let's keep up. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate your talking about these issues and raising awareness, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thanks, Jean. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
who knew that we would be able to find a, a chocolatier <laughs> working in Israel, but that's what we have. Uh, Ika Chocolates, Ika Cohen is her name, and it's not exactly the biggest industry in um, Israel, in Tel Aviv, but uh, she's doing it. And we caught up her in New York City. Yes. So here's Ika. I became so excited when I saw that an award-winning chocolatier was actually from Tel Aviv. <laughs> and we're going to be talking to Ika Cohen. And Ika, is there a long tradition of chocolate making in Israel? Not at all. I didn't Not think at so. All. That's why I thought it was certainly, I was so pleased to discover that there was a chocolatier. Now, you, you couldn't study chocolate making in Israel, could you? Probably not. So you um, went to France? I went to France because I believe in the French ice cream. I believe that uh, in France you can find, well, back then I thought in France you can find the best chocolate around the world. Um, today I know you can find it also in Japan. Oh, yes. Huh? That's, that's come, becoming popular. There's some pretty good chocolate being made in the United States, too. Yeah. Do you know? Tell me about it. Yeah. I'm still looking for. <laughs> mostly, mostly in San Francisco. A lot of, yeah. lot of guys in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, true. I this is why I never get to try because it's on the other side. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it, so most of the chocolatiers that we've interviewed are, are making. They've come to chocolate making from some other profession or some other uh, discipline. And you did too. You were to marine biology. I was a sound technician for many years. That's what I did uh, in the army, and then. Um, I did it for about 15 years. Um, while I was a sound technician, I studied marine biology, but my passionate was always uh, towards chocolate. So it took me about, I guess, 70 years after the army to to realize um, that's what I want to do. Now you realize you realize you're talking to a sound technician right now, right? <laughs> I was a son, I was in your position for so many years. <laughs> now your your chocolates are artisanal, uh, probably high in, in cacao, right? Cacao is something that, just like alcohol, you don't measure cacao. Okay. You, you measure where it comes from, right? Uh, the region, the, the region, um, the kind of uh, fermentations. There is a whole process. You can get a eighty percent and ninety percent of the right. shitty chocolate. Right, which is, I like, I mean, people who like milk chocolate don't like artisanal chocolate because it's mainly, uh, um, it's mainly high in count. No. But, but I think that people should eat what it's good for them. The mm-hmm. soul is important as well. It's not just about body, it's not just about um, eating superfood. It's about mm-hmm. the soul. Eat what you like. No, that... What you like. That you have to not only learn... To make the chocolates, and um, you had where do you source your chocolate from? Ah, uh, Valrhona. Back in Israel, we the best chocolate uh, we can have at the moment is Valrhona. That's a good chocolate, you know. But you oh, don't yeah. do the you don't deal with chocolate growers and whatever they're called. I really want to work directly with the Bintubar producer. 
but it is very difficult because first we need the kosher certificate. Yes. Oh, sure. And yes, then, yes. Uh, and then uh, there is a the price issue. If you don't bring it in big volumes and you don't find the right uh, importer, then it is very difficult to to import it to Israel by itself. Well, I mean, you've you've tackled a, a big project. <laughs> I mean, you you have to also. If it's not really a traditional in, in your market, you've got to build a market for chocolate in Tel Aviv as well, huh? It is very funny because I am more familiar abroad rather rather than in my own country. I'm sure you are, yeah. So the, where was the award? I'm trying to remember that I saw you got. from. It was in the States, I think. Uh, mainly in Italy. There is an international chocolate award okay. that uh, takes take place in many places around the world and we belong to Israel belong to the Mediterranean uh, competition and that is in Italy in Venice uh, it's not in Venice I'm sorry in Italy in Florence this is where I received my um, my first uh, international medal gold okay that's where I saw it I guess Um, yeah now you have some signature chocolate what are they can you describe some of your work? First of all, it's very beautiful because we looked at it. Well, here's what I would here's what I would suggest, listeners: tune 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 the device you're listening on, ikachocolate.com. Ika. Ika. Ikachocolate.com, and look and look at the pictures, and you'll just drool. <laughs> I should take it as my uh, PR. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but they are beautiful. Thank you. So um, there are a few things. Um, I think that, of course, the bonbon are the main product. Um, but then again, um, uh, many years ago, I brought my brother uh, just a chunk of chocolate with a hazelnut, caramelized hazelnut, and he told me, forget about everything. This is so good. Ah, and I, told him, I didn't go all the way to Paris, washed so many dishes for you to tell me <laughs> that this is the best. I mean, I want to, I want to believe that I know just a little bit more than that. Um, so yeah, we have some chunks of chocolate with uh, different kind of uh, fillings. Um, we got the bonbons, we got the grapefruit uh, bonbon, which I really, really like. We got the Roman marzipan, we got the crunch that is with a little wafer inside. Um, beside the bonbon, we have um, something that has become my uh, my addiction at the moment. What which is? is uh, hazelnut, uh, caramelized hazelnut, oh, covered, covered with a strawberry chocolate inspiration, it's called. And it's really... It's it's a very nice combination, and um, I keep taking it from the shelf, open, eat, and then I keep saying to myself, <laughs> so don't eat from something that is already packed. Just go back. <laughs> You're destroying your packaging. It's really, what it's are you doing? It's really, it's but really, I can't. It's really funny you should um, say that, because remember I mentioned to you, I don't know if we were on the, we were on the air or not, when somebody, somebody approached us, Representing a chocolatier in Saint Remy in Provence, and want, wanting us to arrange to ship into the United States, but the best thing about the whole shop oh. was just to, just as you, you make your chocolates in the shop, and people can see you through through glass. In, the, in this case, the owner was even closer to the counter, and on the counter was a bowl. With the misshapen ones, yeah, you could eat all the ones, and you could yes. you could take as many of those as you wanted. 
No, no. We got that too. His, his, his specialty, uh, his specialty was adding spices. Yes, and he had he had a little chart, so you can identify by number. Each yes, number yes, yes, had right. uh, there was a number on uh-huh. the little square. Is that a Zed chocolate? Pardon? What's the name? Zed chocolate? I don't. I don't remember. I'm trying to remember. I, I, They're little squares. They're all the same size, size and shape. Zed chocolate, I believe. Could be, How could, do you spell that? Z, just like the. Oh, Z. The, the we, we, we say we. Well, I, I have learned to say Z. I used. To, I. I grew up saying Z. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, the 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 chocolate. Okay, is he still going? Are they still going? Yeah, and actually, the shipping so well. I mean, I ordered one, and I was so impressed by the shipping, by the packaging, by everything. It was. I really recommend. Now, do you have a shop as well, or do you mainly do online? We have a shop in the atelier, uh-huh. um, and we used to have two other shops, but uh, since uh, they went so well, I had to close them. Um, people keep asking me, why did you close them? I said, I made so much money, I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like raising wine. There's someone you need to... There's someone you need to meet, and if you if you can't figure it out, we'll help you. The uh, the most recent addition to the to the, to women owning three Michelin stars is Dominique Crenn. She's obviously French, and her restaurants in San Francisco. Yeah, you need to come to San Francisco. You, you need will. you need an you need an excuse to go to San Francisco. I just got one, didn't I? So reach reach out, reach out to Dominique Crane. Her restaurant's called Atelier Crane. C R E N N. Yeah. No, just Double one, a. just one N. Double N. C R A. C R N Crane. C R E N. And and thinks it has two N's. I think it only has one. If, so if, if you if you have any difficulty reaching out to her, we I think we have we have an email. Crane Atelier with double N. With double N. Yes. And the fir- first Got name, it already. First name Dominique. But I'm going to say, you send me. Yes. That will be fine too. So, uh, <laughs> now, how about your website? Because uh, it's, um, I was on it, so, uh, tell, tell our listeners your website. And you could order actually right from the website. But only in, Tel- only in, uh, in Israel and not even everywhere in Israel. No. Just, okay. um, well, close right. to Tel Aviv. Go, go to Israel. Just for a chocolate bar, why not? Everybody does that. <laughs> bon bon. First, please do, but um, then again, I'm more than willing to bring it with me Well, I mean, you, you seem to be having a wonderful adventure, Eka. I believe we live now. God knows what's going to be tomorrow. But we're here, and we should take the most out of our lives. Right. And I couldn't believe the price. That was so cheap. And we and we and we hope they manage the rebuilding of the of the cathedral that everybody loves so much. And we, it, it was just hard. To, was just hard to believe. We were watch. We were watching in real time, in the middle of the afternoon. It was just a, a terrible thing. What happened? He's talking about Notre about, about, Dame. No, about the Notre Dame. Oh no! And it and was the, horrible. The, horrible. I thought about it. That um, in a way. So so different from the um, really different from the from the twins, but uh, but there is something. So many people around the world were so uh, sad. Oh, yes. Yes. Notre Dame touched 
so many people and it's right. in the history and it's in the culture and it's something that everyone stood a moment and said, what's going on? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. So anyhow, um, I'm but, but it, they say that in like five years it's going to be... Well, that's Just what like Macron him. says. I don't know. It took 200 years to build it. I don't know how they're going to do but it. But it was a different time. Yeah, It was a different time. True. Everything yeah. is rapid today. Well, you continue enjoying yourself and continue winning awards for your chocolate. And uh, it's, it's certainly a bright spot for me to, to discover a wonderful artisanal chocolate, um, chocolate maker in Tel Aviv. And that's... You know, next time we will look you up and say hello, and and you do the same if you come back to the states. Or when you Please, back. Please thank come you so much, and good good luck and much success for you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Bye bye. So who knows we'll be on who'll be on next week's show? Right, it's always a surprise. You'll, you'll have to listen in order to find out. So we hope you'll join us again, same time, same place next week. And until then. Bye-bye.